Do you ever get the impression that someone is watching you? (laughs) Good morning and welcome. Thanks for being here. That was really good. I appreciated that. Thanks for all your hard work in making this happen. I'm curious, how many of you are here from Andrews Academy? Okay, a few there. Let's see. Uh, Spring Valley. Ooh, fair number in there. Let's see. Who, who, who's, who, who else is here? Collisdale Academy. Yes, welcome. Glad you're here. Who else? Crawford. Welcome. We're glad that you're here. Anybody else? Say it all at once. Hinsdale, etc. Yes, okay. Welcome. Glad that you're here. So this is a good place to be. And someday, you're going to be thinking about a college or university to go to, and we want you here. So uh, we we think this is a pretty good place to be. You've only had just a small taste this weekend. Uh, We do good things like this all the time, and we'd love to have you be a part of uh, what happens here on this campus. It is a very good place. If you want to find out what Jesus' plan for your life is, this is the place to be. And we hope that you can come and join us. Thank you very much for being here. And uh, watch my back. I'm going in. Okay? So, I thought we would begin this morning with a test of your denominational knowledge. I don't mean religious denominations, I mean this. Denominations as in different types of bills, that's what they refer to it. And there's currency, you have have different types of denominations, ones, fives, etc. here. So I'm going to test your knowledge. Now, if you are in first service, you need to take a vow of silence for the next few minutes, okay? And if you are tempted to pull out your phone and, and ask Google for help, no, 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 this is church, be honest, okay, we're testing your knowledge, right? So, whose picture appears on the $1 bill? All right, that's pretty easy, isn't it? George Washington, a whole bunch of these things in circulation, whatnot. Uh, how about this, uh, $5 bill? Abraham Lincoln, that's right, Lincoln, 16th president of the United States. Moving on up here, we have here the $10 bill, who's that? Okay, a little bit of confusion in the house about that. This is, uh, this is Alexander Hamilton. <laughs> Haven't seen a $10 bill for a while, huh? Things are tight. Yes, right? Uh, Alexander Hamilton, first U.S. Secretary of Treasury, founding father, co-writer of the Federalist Papers, etc., etc. Uh, $20 bill. Ah, uh, yes, okay, some unanimity on that one. You to, it's not that you're hard up. You've got 20s in your wallet, not 10s. All right. That's right, Andrew Jackson. Uh, Andrew Jackson was our seventh president of the United States. How about this one? $100 bill, that's right. This is, oh, we have some well-heeled people in the congregation this morning, yeah. This is uh, Benjamin Franklin, uh, listed among our founding fathers, uh, royal character and innovator, uh, inventor, etc., etc. Now, how about this one? $1,000 $1,000 bill. Now, just so you know, this, this bill was discontinued in 1969, so they, they are still technically in circulation, but they're not being printed any longer. Any idea who's on here? Well, I, I actually heard it. I actually heard it. Grover Cleveland. Okay, Grover Cleveland, 24th president. You knew that one. Does somebody know that one up here? No. All right, all right, keep it on going here. Uh, how about this one? Uh, a $5,000 bill. Who's on this one? Did you, if you want to check your wallet to see, you can. 
You can do that now? Okay. Let's, let's see who's on here. James Madison, right? Fourth president of the United States, father of the Constitution, uh, co-wrote the Federalist Papers, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Now, how about this one? $10,000 bill. This is a real thing. $10,000 bill. Whose picture's on it? Way better than that. I don't know who that guy is, but anyway, I mean, it's, uh, uh, it's actually Salmon P. Chase. And some of you are wondering, isn't that a fish? Uh, no, no, Salmon P. Chase uh, was uh, actually a fairly influential guy. He was an Ohio senator and governor, U.S. Treasury Secretary under Abraham Lincoln. Uh, you may remember Lincoln's team of rivals, and uh, certainly Salmon P. Chase was on, on the rival side uh, of that team of rivals. Uh, the last one here, at least as far as U.S. circulation is concerned, the nomination of $100,000. Uh, you'll never guess it. I didn't know it either. It's Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Woodrow Wilson was our 28th president. Uh, this, this bill, you can see it there if you can read it in the fine print, was known as a gold certificate. And it was actually, it wasn't considered to be actually legal tender except when used by the Federal Reserve Banks. So, so if, if you have one of these in your possession, there's two things that you should know. Number one, it's extremely valuable to collectors. They will give you a lot of money for it, more than the face value on the bill. And the FBI is waiting to see you after the church service is done, okay? Because you shouldn't have that bill in your possession, all right? Okay. It's remarkable, isn't it? I mean, you know, this, this, this parade of personages that we, that we put on our bills. And the U.S. is not the only country to do this. Uh, for instance, uh, Dame Mary Gilmore uh, appeared, began to appear in 2017 on the Australian $10 bill. Uh, she's a uh, widely noted, uh, nationally recognized poet and writer, and they, they placed her on this bill beginning in 2017. And, of course, this may be more familiar to Queen Elizabeth II. Uh, she's been on a variety of bills in the UK and also in Canada. This happens to be a $20 Canada note that began circulation in 2004. And on and on and on the list could go. Now, question, why do governments do this? Why do they place the pictures of, of, of you know, these famous men and women on, on these bills? What's the message that's trying to be conveyed there? Is it safe to say that, it, that if you use this piece of paper correctly, they're trying to, you might become like one of them? Maybe someday you'll sit in the White House. Uh, and of course, you have, in the United States, you have to be dead in order to get on the bill, so don't aspire to that. But, uh, but could it be they're trying to send a message of, of power and potential, maybe, for what's on these bills? And if that's the case, I wonder just how much is this paper money worth. Now, some of you are thinking increasingly little, Pastor Shane, increasingly little. As insurance, or excuse me, inflation continues to go up and we have difficulty around the globe with economic issues, etc., etc., etc. But the question is one that needs to be answered by every person that is breathing from the youngest to the oldest because this is an issue that will touch sooner or later everyone. What is the worth of this money when it comes to the life we are called to live. 
If you have a Bible or a device, whatever you have, turn please to Matthew chapter 25, verse 14. Matthew, the 25th chapter, beginning with verse 14, it's on page 668 in the Red Pew Bible. That's probably somewhere around you there, at least most of those Bibles. Page 668, Matthew 25, beginning with verse 14. Let me give you a little background here. In Matthew 24 and 25, we have Jesus' longest uh, uh, discourse on the end of time. Essentially, at the beginning of chapter 24, his disciples come to him and say, Lord, tell us uh, what will be the signs of the destruction of Jerusalem and what will be the signs of your coming, establishing your kingdom. Jesus weaves those two things together in chapter 24. He begins to tell some parables also. And by the time we get to chapter 25, we have this parable often referred to as the parable of the talents. Now, if you're new to the Bible and you're not sure what a parable is, a a parable is an object lesson story. There are details in it that are certainly rooted in actual events, but it is an object lesson story, and the point is real. The point that Jesus is making with this parable is intended to be very, very real, even if facets of the story did not necessarily reflect actual events. Let's check this story out. Matthew 25, beginning with verse 14. Jesus is speaking. He says, again... It will be like, in other words, the end of time, those days, and then Jesus' return, establishing his kingdom. Again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents of money, to another two talents, and to another one talent, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. Now, pause for just a moment, please. These talents... That, that, that are given here. These talents are not like the ability to play the guitar or, or saxophone or something like that. The, this is actual money in the parable that is given to these servants. And this was certainly a factual thing. It, did, it was not an unusual occurrence. If there was a wealthy landowner, had a large estate or whatnot, he would call his most trusted servants to take care of business while he was away on a journey. Servants then did not only do menial tasks, some of them were highly trained and highly educated to take care of precisely this type of thing. So, not an unusual thing. He then gives these, quote, talents. Now, what's a talent? Well, a a talent in those days was actually a, a measure of weight. It was a measure of weight. And scholars have debated exactly what, how much you know, weight that was, but we have at least a reasonable understanding that it was 75 pounds. And we're going to guess that this 75 pounds, one, one talent, was not given in gold because, you know, then as, as now, most people didn't just have gold. It was too precious lying around the house, etc. But they did use silver as currency. So if this is 75 pounds of silver, let's try to get a picture for how much money is being given to these servants. One talent, about $30,000. I think the price of silver this week was like $23 an ounce, $26 an ounce, something like that. Two talents, $60,000. Five talents, $150,000. Now, that's not a small amount of money. But scholars have also pointed out that a talent doesn't go as far as it used to. And given inflation, actually, in those days, the buying power for a talent was way more than it would be even using United States silver prices, etc. So actually, if we take the Bible's reckoning, one talent was equal to 20 years' pay for an unskilled laborer. 20 years' pay. So if we bring that into modern terms... 
One talent, 20 years' pay at minimum wage. You know, the, the federal minimum wage now is $7.25. If we just take that, that, that minimum reckoning there, one talent would equal $300,000. Two talents, $600,000. Five talents, $1.5 million. Translation, this is, a, this is a truckload of cash that the master is giving to his servants. This is not, this is not pennies. He is entrusting a sizable part of his fortune to these servants. And then he goes away on his trip. Let's see what happens next. Uh, Verse 16. The man who had received the five talents went at once and put his money to work and gained five more. So also the one with the two talents gained two more. But the man who had received the one talent went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received the five talents brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five talents. See, I have gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man who had the two talents also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two talents. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received the one talent came. Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man, harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. So I was afraid and went out and hid your talent in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed? Well, then you you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. Take the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has will be given more, and he will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what he has, will be taken from him. And throw the worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's quite a story, isn't it? And for those of you that have spent time studying the meaning of this story, you know that there are are many lessons that, that we can pull from this. But I think it might be helpful for us to focus specifically on verse 27. And this may seem a little bit odd when you read it there, but I, but I think that verse 27 is the key to unlocking the core meaning of this parable. Let, let's read verse 26 to get some context, and then verse 27. His master replied, You wicked, lazy servant, so you knew that I harvest where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seed. Verse 27 Well, then, you, you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers. So that when I returned, I would have received it back with what? What's that word? With interest. Huh. Now, th- this is a fascinating point here. And often it doesn't, it, it can, we kind of gloss right over. We don't want to rush to the end here. At today's average interest rates, 
on a consumer saving account. Okay, average rate across the United States, I checked on this at the FDIC website yesterday, over a period of, of say, a year, the, the average that you'll get today is 0.46%. That just, that just gets your blood running, doesn't it? Ooh, 0.46% interest. Yeah. Pretty weak, huh? Okay. But, but let's see if we can bring this in the modern terms here. If the first servant with his $300,000 in talent here given by the master to him, if he had placed it for one year with the bankers at 0.46%, he would have earned about $1,380 in interest. That's it. And furthermore, let's imagine that the master was gone for 10 years. Now, just as the master was gone for a long time. We don't, we don't know how long he was gone, okay? But, but 10 years, that's a good long time. So it's a round number. Let's use it. This means that in 10 years' time, the interest that would have been earned by that 300000 that one talent given to the unfaithful servant, well, let, let's put it in the context of the others, right? The invested talents during this time, this, this, this imaginary 10-year time, the first servant, we know that he doubled. He went from $1.5 million to $3 million. Wow, doubled his investment. The second service, servant, $600,000 to $1.2 million. He doubles it too. The third servant with his one talent, he goes from $300,000 to $314,089. $314,089. Now, I'll tell you what, I wouldn't mind having $14,089 lying around free in my house. That, that wouldn't be so bad. I'm sure I could find a use for that, right? But when compared to the first two servants, I mean, that, that's peanuts. It's nothing. Now, I fully understand that this parable of Christ is not solely about money. The talents are representative of skills, abilities, resources, etc. that God has put under our stewardship. Fully accept and support that. And this fact certainly does not exclude money from the equation. In fact, money is obviously the primary vehicle by which the points of the parable are made, which leads us to a potentially eye-popping proposition. Could it be, could it be, that the, the reason the master said, why didn't you put money on deposit, was not because of the master's desire to squeeze every last penny out of his estate, but because of this fact, money is one of God's tools to prepare us for heaven. Money is one of God's tools to prepare us for heaven. In other words, follow me carefully here. The interest that would have been earned for the third servant on the master's cash was so comparatively puny that we can immediately see that the raw gaining of wealth is clearly not the point of the parable. No, for the parable was not about how much money was earned for the master, but rather what that money ultimately did for and in the servant. Let's unpack this a little further. In the parable of the talents, the wicked servant is not thrown out into darkness primarily because of how he spent his master's money, but of why he spent his money. For you see, at the fundamental level, the servant hid the money in the ground because, listen carefully, he didn't share his master's values. That's why the servant did it. You say, how do you know? Because that's what the text says. It says there very clearly, quote, I knew that you are a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. In other words, he's calling his servant a thief. I mean, this is a bold accusation right in your face. 
And the servant, therefore, had completely misjudged his master. Because in the parable, who is the master representing? Jesus. Yeah, yeah this is Jesus. And Jesus is, is our Savior. He, he's our Lord, our Savior, our friend, the one who died for our sins, who loves us so much that he gave his life for us. And the wicked servant does not share that love and sacrificial spirit, apparently, at all. And in the eyes of the master concerning that servant, this was the overarching point. And he even addresses it specifically. So you knew, the master says, that I was a hard man. And thus the master addresses this directly in his sentencing of the wicked servant. In other words, the master had been looking for something. While he was away, he had been looking for the servant to adopt his values, his mission, his priorities as his own. And the money was simply the tool the master used to attempt to do this. You see, as it turns out, God is ultimately not looking for cash, but for character. God is not ultimately looking for money, but for a mind that is motivated by His mission. God is not ultimately looking for interest earned on His economic assets, but rather for the development of devotion in the daily lives of His disciples. And yes, for all of these things, God very often uses the tool of money to bring these results about in us. Now, based on this understanding of this parable, we can now identify at least two key truths about money. And the first one, I don't think you'll argue with. First truth, how we spend money expresses our values. That's pretty basic, right? I mean, if you want to know what somebody believes, uh, take a look at how they spent their money for the month. We spend money to buy things that we approve of. Uh, We spend money to stop things that we don't approve of. How we spend our money expresses our values. But there is a second truth, and it is not often recognized, and it's this. How we spend money shapes our values. It doesn't just express them, but it also shapes them. When we participate financially in something, something comes back to us. We experience something as a result of that investment, either for good or for bad. Now, again, we see this in the parable with the unfaithful servant. This servant starts out sharing at least some of his master's values. Did you see that in the story? Remember, what the master does, he calls his servants in and he gives them these talents according to their, what was the word? Ability. According to their ability. Now, some people say, well, that just means they were good with money. No, 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 no. The devil is good with money, but don't give him your wallet. Because he doesn't share your values. Right? So, so, so when he says according to their ability, he's not just talking about, you know, calculating savvy. He's talking about do they share my values? Can I trust them? The first servant comes in. And, and apparently this servant has, has had you know, maturity in his relationship with the master. He shares the master's value, and the master recognizes that by giving him five talents. You know, 1.5 million bucks. Second servant comes in. Not as much experience as the first servant. Shares much of his master's values, but not all of them. And says, you know what? You're not quite ready for five, but I'm going to give you two. And then the third servant comes in. And the seeds of the master's values undoubtedly have sprung up in this servant's heart. The, the, the servant has, has somehow made at least a portion of the master's values his own. But the master looks and sees and says, you know, the measure of maturity, it's not, you're not ready for five talents. You're not ready for two. But I'm going to give you one. Now go to it. Go to it. 
So the servant starts out with at least a measure of sharing his master's values, but something happens over the time of the journey. Obviously, we don't know from the parable when exactly this happened. Maybe, maybe the servant, you know, uh, buried it right away. Maybe he waited a little while. Uh, you know, what must have gone through that, that, that servant's mind when he saw the other two servants, you know, multiplying the master's money? You know, oh, maybe I, should, maybe I should go dig it up. Maybe I should bring it out to, to put it. Maybe, maybe I should even take it to the bankers. Maybe interest would be fitting. But for whatever reason, he doesn't do it. He continues to, quote, spend the master's money by burying it in the ground. And it affects him. It shapes him. You see, the longer you say no to Jesus, the colder your heart can become. And somewhere along the line, this servant went from being a candidate to receive part of the master's estate to someone who is cold and hard and cynical to the place where he even mistakes the Savior for a thief. How we spend money both expresses our values and shapes them as well. All of which leads to what I think is a fascinating conclusion. If these two things are true, then how we spend our money reveals not only who we are, but also who we will become. Wow. How we spend our money reveals not only who we are, but also who we will become. So I want to encourage you to do a little thought experiment just between you and Jesus, right in the quietness of your own cranium. I want you to imagine that Jesus, not me or a church leader or, or, or anybody else, no financial planners, just, just you and Jesus met tomorrow. And you sat down at the table and, and, and all of your receipts uh, your, your, your credit card bills, your, 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 your online receipts for everything that you purchased for, for the month or for the year, and Jesus sees all of these things. What kind of person would Jesus say you currently are, and what kind of person would Jesus say you are becoming? For some of you, that may be a joyful thought experiment. Perhaps for others it might be a little more sobering. And does Jesus have an idea of the person he'd like us to become? Yes, that's an easy question, right? Yeah. Yes, he does. Yes, he does. You know, you know when, I, when I read in my Bible, Fruits of the Spirit found in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, I think it is safe to say that Jesus wants each of us to become people who are loving and joyful and peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and, and gentle and self-controlled. Amen? Amen. So let's spend money so that we and others can become those kind of people. I think Jesus also wants each of us to become like what's described in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. People that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. Amen? Amen, yes. So let's spend money so that we and others can become those kind of people. And there's a little book called Education on page 57. And it makes me think that Jesus also wants us to satisfy the greatest want of the world. 
by becoming people who cannot be bought or sold. People who in their inmost souls are true and honest. People who do not fear to call sin by its right name. People whose conscience is as true to duty as the compass needle is to the North Pole. People who will stand for the right though the heavens fall. Amen? Let's spend money, therefore, so that we and others can become those kind of people. Now, there's probably a thousand ways that the Lord could guide each of us individually to to spend money towards those goals, to, to help us become the kind of people that God dreams we can be. I just want to share with you two of them, two ways that this process can happen, and I can sum it up in a single sentence. When it comes to money, if you want to become the kind of person Jesus wants you to become, regularly return tithe and offerings. If you want to become, when it comes to money, if you want to become the kind of person Jesus wants you to become, regularly return tithe and offerings. Now, now what I'm going to say next year, I, I need to have a little caveat before I say it. I do not earn a penny more if you do or don't pay tithe or offerings. This is part of the genius of the Adventist system, okay? In the Adventist system, generally speaking, every pastor makes essentially the same thing. There's some adjustments for cost of living, but that's about it. And so a pastor gets paid the same whether he has three members or 3,000. And that is part of the genius of, of, of this whole thing because we can send a pastor to an unentered area where there is no church. He can have zero members and still have money to put food on the table and clothes on his back and gas in the tank. I think that's a great thing, right? Translation, if you give more money, I don't see any of it. I will still receive the same meager paycheck that I got before, okay? That in mind, you tell me, how much is tithe? Simple question. 10%, right? The Bible's real clear about that. 10%, this is tithe. God asks us to return that. So if I make $100 in, in some sort of work that I do, then $10 of that God asks me to return to him. Now, in the Seventh-day Adventist church, where does this tithe go for? What does it go for? Well, it goes for the sharing of the gospel of Jesus Christ all over the world. And again, to me, this is, this is part of the genius of the Adventist system. I love this. It, 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 when I write out you know, a check or pay online, Adventist giving for, my, for, for tithe for our family, when that, when that comes in, let's say the plate comes by and I, and I drop my envelope in the plate with my tithe check and all the tithe that's here, not a dime of that stays here. Every Adventist church in the world, this is how it works. None of that tithe stays here because we are a global worldwide movement, not just here locally. And so we send that up the chain. We send it to our conference office in Lansing. It then goes to union office just down the street. It goes to the division office. It goes to the general conference. Eventually, each one of those places will take a little bit to sustain their operations. But the bulk of it then goes out to the worldwide field, which means, quite literally... There are, there, are, there are pastors in parts of the world right now that, that have a bicycle to ride or, or, or a, a, a car to drive and a roof over their head so they can preach the gospel in an area that is poor and not lavishly endowed like America is. And it happened because people like me put their tithe envelope in the plate right here. That's awesome. Someone say amen. That's a great, great thing. And I'll tell you what. Adventists are traditionally very faithful tithe returners. This is one of the reasons why, while the rest of Christianity is tending to have very negative, downward, trending membership, Adventism continues to move upward because we believe that Jesus has called us for such a time as this and we're willing to put our money where our mouth is. It's a tremendous thing. When my daughter was about six years old, maybe five, six years old, 
She, she had been, we set up a little tithe system for our girls. It was just a, a little uh, a plastic jar, a jar there on the side in their room. And when we would give them money, which of course to them was a fortune, you know, give them a quarter. Oh, you know, this kind of, we say, well, you know, we need, to, we need to pay tithe on that. So we put some pennies in, okay? And they'd be watching this, right? And the first Sabbath when, when my youngest, Ellie, was going to pay tithe came up. And we had an envelope there. And uh, I, I, we sat down and we were making out, uh, I made out a tithe check. And she's getting together her pennies, put them in there. She put 10 pennies in that tithe zone. She made a dollar. And she was excited. And she looked at all these coins in there, and she, she looked at me, and I was, I was just putting a piece of paper in my envelope. Doesn't look very valuable. I mean, look, I've got all these coins over here. These, they clank, and they make sound, and these are, you know. Anyway, she seals it up. She's very proud. And later on, she, she goes to my wife, and they are snuggling up there and talking about this, and Ellie is all chatting. Oh, I'm going to pay tithe. I'm going to pay tithe tomorrow. And she says, she smiles, and she leans in, and she says, I think I paid more than Daddy did. <laughs> she was so excited to be able to participate in the worldwide work of Jesus Christ. And I'll tell you what, when we return our tithe and our offering, with that type of attitude, great things can happen. Not just somewhere out there, but in here. Because when we are paying attention, when we do this in a thoughtful way, when we return our tithe, we become more and more the person that Jesus wants us to be as we help others become more and more the people that Jesus wants them to be. And one last thing with tithe. Don't just return tithe when you're flush. Return it when money is tight. And some are saying, oh, Pastor Shane, you don't understand. I got way more month than money. I, I, I can't afford to pay tithe. All things being equal, maybe the reason why you don't have enough money is because you're not paying tithe. You say, how could that possibly be? Because according to heaven's math, 90% goes just as far or further than 100%. You cannot outgive God. In fact, if you begin to pay tithe, God has a promise for you. Let me just put it up here on the screen. This is from Malachi chapter 3. God is speaking here to his people. He says, will a man rob God? And he said, yet you rob me. But you ask, how do we rob, rob you? And God responds, in tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation of you. Because you are robbing me, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse. And then he says this, test me in this. This is rare. This doesn't happen very often in the Bible. But here God says it. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have room enough for it. All right, that was pretty slow on the amen, ladies and gentlemen. Do I need to read that all over again? All right, someone say amen. amen. God promises you cannot outgive him. And if you return a faithful tithe to him, he says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. 90% will go just as far or further than 100. Test him. Test him and see. And what about offering? You know, the Bible doesn't tell us explicitly how much offering we are to return. That we give an offering regularly to the Lord, that is commanded in Scripture. But how much, that's between you and the Lord. You know, I am so grateful for those of you that have been faithfully giving uh, to Renovate 2.0. Those of you who don't know what that is, uh, Renovate, uh, it's a series of initiatives that have been done here at Pioneer. This beautiful sanctuary is the result of earlier phases of that. Other uh, additions and upgrades have been going on. Thank you for your faithfulness to that. Let's knock it out in the next few months. Let's get this thing done. This is a good thing. And, and, I would strongly encourage each of us, each month, to give 
to local church budget. Doesn't that just sound so romantic? I mean, you just, you, your, your, your blood pressure takes a little skip and your heart flutters when you hear the words church budget, right? You know, it's, just, it's exciting. It's, all right, maybe not, but let me see if I can sweeten the deal here a little bit. If you're watching at home right now and, and you're a part of a local church, wherever it is, whatever flavor it is, I want to encourage you to regularly give to your local church budget because local church budget is the financial engine for ministry in your local congregation. And if you're here, if you're part of our Pioneer family, I want to encourage you to regularly give to our church operating, to church, local church budget. Let me tell you why. Every year... Pioneer, our church family, churns out hundreds of thousands of dollars to support students who need a quality education. We provide food for the hungry, clothing for those who need it. Hundreds of people who experience emergencies, both, both inside our church membership and outside of it, are assisted by our congregation every year. Furthermore, every Sabbath, our children are educated in our Sabbath schools downstairs. There are, there are hundreds of our kids that are down there taught with these wonderful resources and teachers and materials that we have available. Every Sabbath morning, our students are fed breakfast down in the commons by the hundreds, and a fair slice of the world worships with us during our worship services on Sabbath morning. And all of this, all of this is funded in full or in part from what? Church budget, Exactly. And we praise the Lord for your faithfulness in making all of these things happen. Thank you. Thank you. And yet, there is much more that we could be doing. The opportunities are out there. There are still hundreds more of our students that cannot afford to attend our schools. This weighs on me daily. I am troubled by this fact. I think we can do more. There are untold numbers of people in the surrounding area that need assistance still with food and clothing and shelter, including through our various ministries to Benton Harbor. Uh, There are mechanical needs in this hallowed but increasingly experienced building that need attention. There are media opportunities to share the gospel that are just waiting to be utilized. There are untold opportunities right here on our campus for sharing Jesus, yet we cannot fully address these things because we do not have sufficient funds yet to do so. So I just want to invite you to make maximum use of what God has entrusted to you. You know, whether we are older or younger or in between, let us put the money that God has entrusted us to very good use. You know, know, there are some churches that I know of, not very many, but there are some that have such robust giving to church budget that they never make special appeals for anything else. It's astonishing. One church I'm thinking of in particular, when there was a major uh, uh, HVAC failure in the church, they paid cash for it. There was a major ministry opportunity that was in the tens of thousands of dollars that would cost them. No problem. The money was saved up. Off they went. Now, we're not there yet at Pioneer, but we could be. We could be. And I want to invite you to join Darlene and me in every month making just a regular contribution, whatever it might be, between you and the Lord, that's up to you, a regular contribution to the work here in the local church budget of Pioneer Memorial Church. There are great things that can happen. More people's lives will be changed in Jesus Christ when we do this. And yes, if we do it thoughtfully and intentionally, we will be changed as well. More and more as we partner with Jesus in how we spend our money. (laughs) Because the funny thing, 
As it turns out, the net worth of a Washington, a $1 bill, or a Wilson, a $100,000 bill, is not measured in cars or houses or land or prestige or status or what have you. But the real net worth of a Washington or a Wilson is measured in the glory given to God by life transformation by and for Jesus Christ in others' hearts and in ours. And by that measurement, may Jesus return soon and find us very rich indeed.